Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning is Isaiah 40, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understand from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing, and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Please be seated. It's so good to see all of you coming out this morning for the study of God's Word, for the singing of songs, and then the extended reading of God's Word. We do, as a fellowship, celebrate word, prayer, and the ordinances, and I'm glad that you're here. We believe that God uses those means to minister to our hearts. So we are thankful that you are here with us this morning, and we trust that the service itself will be a blessing to you. Now, I came from a family of eight siblings. We have seven siblings. I'm the youngest of five boys. And I remember as a child, Christmas Eve. Now, I don't have the same excitement at 63 that I did at five and six. But I remember my brother and I, Christmas Eve, barely able to sleep, just waiting for the next morning. And then we'd look, get up early in the morning, early, early in the morning. We'd look out our door. We'd look down the hallway. We'd see the tree and all the presents underneath the tree. And my parents would tell us that we have to wait until they get up. So we were anxious for them to get up. And we'd finally get out and open up the presents, and we'd have just a great time. Well, we're coming back to Isaiah after several months. And for me, it's like Christmas. The book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, are just filled with good things. I appreciate your attentiveness to the extended reading of God's Word, chapter 40, 31 verses, but I trust you are hearing echoes of that in the New Testament. It was reminding you of things that we have read in the New Testament, and even now the majesty of God, behold your God, as it's played out in this text. And Isaiah 40 is in many ways giving us a summary of what we will experience then from 41 all the way through 66. But before we go any further, let us open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. We thank you for the chapters 40 through 66, which offer to us hope to those who are displaced and broken and ministers to those who will be experiencing exile. They lost everything because of their sin. And yet you offer to them in that moment hope. What they experienced in the physical, all of humanity experiences in the spiritual. We are a broken, lost people. We thank you that you are God and we are not. No one and nothing can compare to you. You are altogether different. We ask that this morning you would correct our faulty thinking about ourselves, about you, and about Jesus. We ask that you would use these minutes to change us forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Winston Churchill led the nation of England through the traumas of World War II. As a consequence of his leadership, England survived and Germany failed. Churchill had led the nation through its darkest hour and guided it to victory, only to be hurled from office in an ugly fashion through popular vote. Churchill's wife, Clementine, tried to cheer him up by saying that the defeat might be a blessing in disguise. He grimly replied, at that moment, it seems quite effectively disguised. Often while experiencing exile, loss, and absence, we fail to see how those moments are really a blessing in disguise. 
For good reason, the book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Isaiah is one of the longest and most important books in the Bible. It's quoted or alluded to more than 85 times in the New Testament. It's unparalleled in theological breadth, spanning from creation to consummation. And it offers one of the most comprehensive prophetic pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we understand the Bible, we need to see it from the Old Testament prophets and especially from the prophet Isaiah. We must always seek to understand what it meant to them then. What did this word in Isaiah 40 mean to the nation of Israel for those who were in exile? But what does it mean to us? We must not stop and cannot stop with simply what it meant to them then. We must come to the cross. We must fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We must remember that the Old Testament, as we read through the prophet, we met the Old Testament is only properly read and understood when seen through the lens of the New Testament. So as we look at Isaiah from a bird's eye perspective, when we see the panoramic unfolding of Isaiah, we know that we have 66 chapters. We know that there's a significant topical shift between 39 and 40. In the first 35 chapters, you have the vassal treaty as a foundation. The nation of Israel has violated the Mosaic Code as a consequence of violating the conditions to that constitution, they'll be placed in exile. So they're going to go into exile. The prophet Isaiah writes in about 720, 730 B.C. The ten northern tribes are being assaulted by Assyria. They're about to be carried off into exile. They'll be dispersed by the Assyrians. Then you have in chapters 36 through 39 a word about King Hezekiah. In 36 and 37, it's a word about Assyria. In 38 and 39, it's a word about Babylon. What's interesting, if you look at Isaiah 39, which I'm looking at right now, I'm going to read for us verses 5 through 8. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house... Now, this is about 150 years before the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are going to be deported to Babylon. So 150 years before all of this, the prophet speaks to Isaiah and he says to him, behold, verse six, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Again, that's still 150 years away. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Verse seven, and some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. They will have no offspring. Verse 8, listen to Hezekiah's response. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. He wasn't thinking of his offspring. He was thinking only of himself. But he's been told in Isaiah 39 that the nation of Babylon shall take away the people of Israel. So you have this walk-in. And this specific word that he speaks to his immediate audience is of an experience that they will never encounter. They did not know such would be the case, however. With the collapse of the ten northern tribes, their own demise was credible. His message assures those who have yet to enter captivity that in exile... God shall remain faithful to his word. And what does the prophet promise the people? 
the prophet promises them that when they go into exile, that exile shall end. There will be a termination point. Not only will the exile end, but they will return home. And the third thing that the prophet brings, and we heard that repeatedly in chapters 1 through 35, is that there is a servant king coming who will establish his kingdom. So the people in exile are offered hope. They are given promise. The promise is the exile will end, they will return home, and the servant king is coming, and his kingdom will be established. Now just for a moment, think with me what it would be like to be in exile. What did it mean to them then? Well, living in exile means that you are living involuntarily in another country. You have been displaced from everything you've known. Everything that once made you emotionally and physically comfortable and secure is taken from you. You have lost most, if not all, of your material assets. You cannot leave if you do not like the food, the weather, the music, or the politics. You might not know the language or culture or customs of your captor or country. And for the people of Israel, they are a conquered country and enter as slaves and servants to their captors. They are not asked for their opinion or desires. They are told commands and expected to obey those commands or receive punishment if not fulfilled. Those are the people being addressed. And those people in exile who have lost everything are being told in Isaiah 40 and 40 through 66 that the exile they are in will end. That they will return home. And that a servant king is coming who will establish his kingdom. That's the hope that you have in this section of Isaiah. And often in Hebrew literature, it'll tell you what is going to be said. They will say it, and then they'll repeat what was said. And Isaiah 40 is a summary of the entire section that we're going to be looking at from chapters 41 through 66. The intent of Isaiah 40, and I hope you heard it as it was read. The intent of Isaiah 40 is to take your focus away from everything else and consider the sovereign Lord, the one true living God. He's compared to nations, he's compared to rulers, and he's compared to idols. And who is like the Lord our God? That's a repeating pattern, a repeating phrase found throughout the section. Everything that's mentioned inside of Isaiah 40 is to persuade you to trust God. You can trust God. And we'll see that in our passage that his heart is as tender as it is strong, and he is no less willing than able to save. Now, this section, if you were to open up your Bible and you would see how it is broken down, in the first 11 verses, you have the comfort of God being extended to a people in exile. The comfort of God. And then in 12 through 26, and there's this transitional statement in verse 9, which calls the nation to behold their God. And then from verses 12 through 24... You have the character of God. It shows us who God is. The reason why that God can offer us comfort, even while we are in exile, is because of who he is. He is God, and we are not. And because of who he is, the promises he makes, he keeps. And we'll see that inside our passage. And then verses 25 through 31, you have the goodness of God. Because of who God is, and because of what God has done, there are things that we can respond with. So that's what we see inside our passage. But within our first section of the comfort of God, there are four breakdowns, and you hear them inside the text. In verses 1 and 2, 
Listen to the language of the prophet. And again, he speaks to a people in exile. He speaks to a people who have lost everything. He speaks to a people who have experienced the passing of loved ones. They live with adversity. They live in a context of absence, of loss. And listen to what he says. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. They will experience peace, that her iniquity is pardoned. What brought them into exile shall be forgiven. That's what this text tells us. Double for all her sins. So the first thing we read in verses 1 and 2 is a compassionate call. The prophet's appeal is fixed in a vocabulary of comfort and tenderness. The word comfort occurs 13 times in Isaiah. And the prophet uses the idea of comfort as something that is still yet future. We hear this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Revelation says, come, you that are thirsty. Come, you that are hungry. We hear the compassionate call of God upon the weak and the weary, the broken and the destitute. A compassionate call. For those who are weary and heavy laden, God offers you comfort. The idea of comfort in our passage in Isaiah is the sigh one makes when relieved of conflict or tension or anxiety or pressure. And all of us have experienced that, where we have buildup and all of a sudden, (gasps) we can finally relax. That's the word comfort in our text. We are living with anxiety and adversity and absence. And God assures us a sigh is coming. The warfare will be ended and their iniquity will be pardoned. Each of the following three items unpack this comfort. God makes a way, and we see that in verses 3 and following. We know this from Luke chapter 3, 4 through 6. John the Baptist, it is said of him that he is preparing this way for Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the ultimate and only comfort that we have in this life and in the life which is to come. But notice, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert, the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, uneven ground shall become level, rough places of plain. And notice verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. I believe that's God's complete design when the entire earth will be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. He references that in verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God makes a way for his comfort to reach us. He clears the way where we can experience God's comfort. And then notice what it says. The word of the Lord has spoken this. It walks us into verses 6 and following. The certainty of this comfort is based on the integrity of his word. Every promise that God has made, he will make good on. I am so thrilled for that. God said, if I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. That's a promise. I did it, and I am. God's promises are sure. He has prepared a way for the Lord to reach us. God makes a path for his people in exile to find their home. All of this shadow is captured by the New Testament writers when they identify John as the one who is preparing the way. And Jesus is the one 
for whom the way has been prepared. John prepares the way. Jesus is the way. We find in him all we need. If we find ourselves in exile, if we are unhappy, if we are anxious, if we are uncertain, or just plain miserable, what should we do? Consider Jesus. Jesus is the only answer to our own personal, individual brokenness. When we talk about young people, we recognize that their entire life lies before them. Many opportunities will make themselves available. And what would we say to them? Seek God first through Jesus. Seek God first. Then and only then will you know the sigh of God's comfort. And the glory of God will be revealed. God will make good on his promises. There is a future. Now, how do we know when God says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people? And then it points out that a way will be prepared. How do we know that God will make good? How do we know that we can trust God's word? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. A certain word. It says, A voice cries, a voice says, Cry, and said, And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, we'll have that same language further on in our text concerning the nations that God establishes. God raises up and puts down nations. And the instability of the nation is because of the sovereignty of God. He blows on them and they're gone. But the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But notice, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. Many of us have experienced loss and absence through the passing of loved ones. We believe that what the Bible says concerning those who have preceded us in death will one day be resurrected, that currently they are with Jesus. They are absent from the body but present with the Lord. And we know that one day we will be reunited with them. John 14 assures us that right now Jesus is preparing a place for us. And one day he's coming again and receiving us unto himself. That promise shall be fulfilled. How do I know? Because the word of our God will stand forever. And he says to a people in exile, that will end. You will return home. And the servant king is coming who will establish his kingdom. That's a promise they can bank on. But then verses 9 through 11 a commanding view. And 9 through 11 function as transitional. It goes from the, the comfort of God to the character of God, the greatness of God. But listen to the language of verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. And it's real interesting. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 25 quotes this passage. And it follows the passage from the word of God and then the good news. And in it is embedded Jesus. But notice what it says. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, say to the cities of Judah who are in exile or experiencing exile or will, behold your God. It doesn't matter where you are or what you are experiencing. The answer to that is behold your God. When you and I behold our God, we will know the comfort of God. We turn to him, but a commanding view. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and he recompenses 
before him. And then listen to the language, that tender language. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is what God will do. Whole families at different stages of life, different experiences and physical abilities, he will tenderly bring along and do what he promises. Because of who God is, the promises he makes are enduring. And he will make a way for us to experience his comfort in our adversity and absence. This is what he promises to the nation, to the, those in exile. And what he says about their physicality, he shall do spiritually. There is a necessary connection between the comfort of God and the character of God. It is only as we know the character of God that we can truly experience the comfort of God. And so the prophet shifts 12 through 31. And we understand the majestic language that he employs to elevate God, the ascendancy of God, the transcendency of God, the glory of God. Now, structurally, when you look at this passage, and I think it's important to understand this, you have uh, the big word is chiasm, but what you have is this parallelism. When you talk about the greatness of God, you can see on the slide you have God is the creator of earth, and it's paralleled at the end with God is the creator of the heavens, and emphasis is being made. God is created and controls the heaven and the earth. He is the Lord of the cosmos. And the next statement is God is Lord over nations, and it parallels with God is Lord over world leaders. So there's this emphasis taking place, but the intent is to show that God is. Behold the Lord your God, and there is no one and nothing else like him. I don't know if we fully appreciate all that's being said about God. We live in a very pluralistic world, as did they, and yet our God is exclusively God. Behold your God the character of God. But notice how it ends. There's one paragraph, and it's somewhat of the apex of the entire structure. God alone is God, and he's compared to idols. And what are idols to him? They're nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. But God alone. Let's consider the text. How God is described then in chapter 40 carries all the way forward to the end of Isaiah. We see the majesty of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God. God is in control over the cosmos. God is in control over the nations. Think about what's being said. Our God controls the entire cosmos, everything created. He controls the nations. Put any nation's name in that slot and God controls it. God controls it. And then it speaks of idolatry. But since there is no one and nothing like him, idols are foolish and of no consequence. So all those things we clamor after to bring us happiness or satisfaction or contentment are nothing but dust. And they're empty. Only God can do that. But the passage begins with God as creator of the earth, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? All these rhetorical questions that have only one response. No one and nothing. God is God alone. 
God has no counselor offering him advice. God does what he wants with what is his, and when he does it, he is always right. God is not accountable or answerable to anyone or anything. This passage in the entire scripture speaks to God's transcendency. The transcendency of God is his apartness. There is no one and nothing like God. He is the creator and everything outside of him is created. Later on in our chapter and throughout Isaiah, the apartness is seen in the following language. Just in chapter 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We're like grasshoppers to God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal? Who or what is out there that can compare to him? Says the Holy One. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Folks, if you're trying to figure out God, you won't. There is mystery to God because of the majesty of God. It is this God who offers to his people in exile. It will end. You will come home. And a servant king is coming. That's the hope they have. He can do what he says, and no nation or nations can stop him from fulfilling his promises. Not only is he Lord over the cosmos, but he's Lord over the nations. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. I know many of us watch the news cycle, and you hear all these reports about nations. What are those nations that we are so upset over or bothered by? Those nations are but a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not even enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. (gasps) My word! What we must understand is that the nations created by him are for him. All nations are the subjects of his kingdom. He does with them as pleases him. And we'll read further on in Isaiah 40 that he plants nations and he blows on nations and they disappear. They are but tools in his hands to achieve his desires. He raises them up and he puts them down. He works according to his good pleasure. But the focal point of that section concerning the greatness of God, he's proving his case. He says, I have created and control the cosmos. I create and control the nations. All of it obeys me. And then he brings it to this point. To whom then will you liken me, in verse 18? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. When you read Isaiah 40 through 66, he often comes back to this idea. Idols are nothing. I have an extended study on idolatry in the Bible, but for the sake of time, I'll only make a few comments. 
God's disdain for the idol and idolatry is quickly noted throughout Isaiah. His speech of them and those who worship at their fashioned feet are addressed with acidic sarcasm. There is acidic language used throughout Isaiah's denouncement of idolatry. He openly charges them as lifeless objects fashioned by the created hands of an artisan representing creaturely beings. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 notes a similar idea. Throughout Isaiah, the, pro- the prophet contrasts the living and true God with the dead and false idols behind idolatry. Such gods can be material, such as money, power, prominence, or immaterial, spirit beings. And as a consequence of feeling, and this is what is interesting about the scenario, as a consequence of feeling abandoned by God, Judah now turns to the gods, to the idols of Babylon. They were assuming that the gods of Babylon were more powerful than their god, Yahweh. What they didn't realize is that it is that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who put them in Babylon. Don't trust in their idols. They are nothing. You keep believing and waiting on me. I am the one who brought you into exile, and I am the one who will bring you out of exile. For I am the Lord, your God, and there's nothing and no one else beside me. Isaiah speaks throughout of fashioning an idol from a tree, then using the same wood to heat your house, and then having to nail it down so it does not wobble. It's like Elijah asking the prophets of Baal, is your God in the bathroom? But that is idolatry. Fashioning an object to represent your God is forbidden. There's only one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isaiah continues to build out his argument, as you've noted in our initial parallelism of this paragraph, that he reiterates what he said earlier. God is Lord over world leaders in verses 21 through 24. Listen in verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But God merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. The dominant power in the world will always be temporal. There is one and only one eternal power. And this is God. Again, the language in the paragraph 21 through 24 is very graphic and condescending. God speaks from a position of dominance. God plants nations and moves them as he wills. He merely blows on them and they move. God knows exactly what is going to happen because he knows the end from the beginning. Think about what is being said here. We are talking about a God who has created and controls the cosmos. We are talking about a God who has created and controls the nations. And then we are talking about God who creates and controls you and me. If God creates and controls the entire cosmos, and he has created and controls nations, then maybe, just maybe, God's got you and me. Verses 25 and 26, God is the creator of the heavens, again reiterating what he has already said. To whom then will you liken me, verse 25, that I would be his equal? There is nothing out there that God is not aware of. Everything is in its place. God comforts his people in exile because he controls the exile. 
And after thoroughly noting the character and greatness of God, Isaiah draws application based on the goodness of God. He calls us to behold our God. And notice then what he does in verses 27 through 31. He has just told them that the comfort of God is known and experienced through the character of God. This is who our God is. And there is no one else and nothing else like him. And that God, in the midst of your circumstances, is a comforting God. He leads you like a shepherd leads his sheep. And what then happens in 27 through 31 is the therefore. Notice verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? The prophet and the people ask the question, does God even know I exist? Does God even know that I exist? Are my ways hidden from God? Is he aware that I am in exile? Is he aware that I've experienced loss and absence and the passing of loved ones and everything that I had that gave me a sense of security and comfort has been removed, is gone? He assures them, don't despair. Do not worry as to whether or not God sees you in your loss and adversity. He does, and it is for your good. And although we want direct intervention and undeniable miracles suspending all natural laws, regardless of which way the wind blows in our circumstances, God is still attentive to you and me. God knows you. In the midst of your situation, God knows you. Don't despair. Verses 28 and 29, he again calls them to remember him. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget who I am. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? Most of us end our days weary and tired. But God is not like us. God never feels or thinks that. God's strength is always sufficient for the task before him. But not only don't despair and don't forget, verses 30 and 31, don't quit. Don't quit. Notice how verses 30 and 31 read. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but God doesn't. God doesn't. God never tires. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Don't quit. Keep looking to Him. That's what the word wait. Keep looking to Him, and He will provide for you a way of escape. He does this. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We will persevere. In the midst of your exile, he says to a nation, it will end. I will bring you home. And the servant king is coming. And he'll repeat those phrases over and over and over again. But what does this mean for us today? Well, don't despair. God is fully aware of your life and where you are at intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally. You might say to yourself, I, if one more thing happens, I'm going to go crazy. Well, God knows your finances. He knows your struggles at work. He knows your marriage, your children's rebellion. He knows your car breaking down. And he knows your present confusion as to what's next. No matter where you are in your life, God knows you, so don't despair. But don't forget, life is often overwhelming. It's often overwhelming. 
We want to be happy, but we look for it in all the wrong places. But don't forget who God is. Only God can make you happy, and only God can fill your void. And then don't quit. We know life is tiring, but don't quit. Keep believing in Jesus. Hold fast to Christ. It is in your weakness that you will know and experience his strength. When is the comfort of God the richest? When we are most desperate. But know that God is able to do all that he has promised. This is what God does. So in your exile, in their exile, God makes promises and his word is certain. It will endure and his promises will not fail. And why? Because of who he is. And to that we can say, amen. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. As a people, Father, we are surrounded by the temptation to go to everything other than you. And this passage might have poked us about our own idolatry and low view of you. We have looked to things to do for us what only can be done by you. Thus today we thank you that in Jesus we are forgiven of our own idolatry and misinformed view of you. Our view of you is too low. May we hear the prophet, behold, you are God. We ask that you would continue to change us for the good. Lead us not into this temptation, but deliver us from this evil. May we never forget that you are with us. May we never forget who you are, and may we never, ever quit holding fast to Christ. We ask that you would transform these moments of hearing into doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.